Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a very special guest. I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Bill Thomas, also known as the geriatrician on a mission. He is the founder of changingaging.org and is a longtime innovator in all kinds of things aging. His work on improving nursing home care and creating culture change in long-term care through the Eden Alternative and the Greenhouse Project was featured in Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal. Dr. Thomas is the author of multiple books, including In the Arms of Elders, What Are Old People For?, and more recently, Second Wind, Navigating the Passage to a Slower, Deeper, More Connected Life, which was published in 2014. In the past few years, he has been especially focused on changing the way we think about aging and created a non-fixture theater performance, The Age of Disruption Tour, to spearhead a national conversation on how Americans can better approach aging. In short, he has been working to change the story of aging. I had the opportunity recently to see Dr. Thomas speak live at the Aging 2.0 event in San Francisco, where he gave a keynote in which he talked about aging, ageism, and also his most recent innovation, the Minka House Project. So I'm just so delighted to have him join me today to talk more about these topics and about how we can redefine our stories about independence and aging. Bill, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Leslie. So your keynote was really striking and interesting, and I was really struck by the way you framed the issues around aging. And I would love for our audience to um, to hear some of this. So you've been talking about aging for for a long time, and how do you currently articulate what is going on with aging in America and what you see as the most pressing challenges for us to address? Well, <clears throat> I think when you talk about aging in America, one of the most important things to understand is we use a single word, aging, to describe an incredibly complex, varied phenomenon that millions of different people experience in very different ways. They have different expectations, and, and um, that word, aging, is doing a lot of work for a, one word. So I think the first thing I would say is to, it's important to recognize that there are many, many experiences of aging, many expectations of aging, and that it's a very, very fluid and dynamic process, not, uh, not a single experience for everyone. Right. So, so true. But you also, in your keynote, brought up, you know, some particular challenges and concerns. And can you, can you speak to some of those? Well, I, I actually have very, and I, I know the, you and I share this. I mean, this notion, which is very prevalent, that aging means decline, right. that aging is decline. That, that idea is very damaging, 
very pervasive and um, really hurts people, mainly through a psychological process, which I know you're familiar with, called priming. Mm -hmm. So if, if if I soak you in an ageist culture for 75 years, and every message that you've really ever had about aging is that it's about decline, well, then as you enter into those decades of life, your mind goes in expecting decline to be the default setting. And what we know from research is that uh, our, our minds believe what we tell them. And if you had spent 75 years living in a society that looked at aging as an incredible, complicated opportunity for growth, well, then you'd be primed for behavior that would support that very outcome. So um, one of the reasons I'm so critical of this declinist philosophy is that it really it hurts people every day. It robs them of possibilities, takes away the opportunity to engage aging without these preconceptions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you just brought up that concept that you talked about in your keynote, which is ageism. And I actually, you know, I'm looking at some of the things I jotted down listening to you. And and I remember you saying that the dark heart of ageism is that aging is decline. And so that mm-hmm. regular people feel pity for those of us who work in aging. And, you know, I feel like as a country, we generally talk a little bit more about racism and sexism and less about ageism. And so for people who might not be as familiar with this idea, how do you usually explain to the general public what ageism is? Well, you know, all of these isms that we're talking about all really revolve around the act of judging an individual on the basis of one characteristic. So that could be gender. It could be skin pigmentation. It could be age. The The problem is people, it's always unfair to judge people based on one attribute. So if you take, for example, uh, age, chronological age, that tells us something about a person, but it comes nowhere near to telling us everything about a person. So this idea of judging people according to their age actually happens across the lifespan. So sometimes people judge young people based on their age, and we make assumptions about them like, oh, they're all into video games and they're all computer geeks. Well, Uh, To say that just because they're young is wrong and unfair, and that is actually ageism. So there's prejudices we attach to these beliefs that we can know about a person just because of their age. And one more thing I'd like to say about this that's kind of important. I've been talking up till now about negative ageism. But there's also something called, it's referred to as positive ageism. It's really not so positive. I'll explain. Sometimes we make judgments about people based on their age and we think good things about them. So we'll say, oh, you know, Mrs. Jones is 85. She must be wise. Well, who knows if she's wise 
Mrs. Jones could be an old fool, I mean, for all we know. But we can't – it is bad to say negative things about people because of their age. And honestly, it's also bad to make positive assumptions about people based on their age because it's it, – it, it, it reduces – a human being, a complicated human being, to one characteristic. Mm. And that's what right, the problem right. is. So earlier you mentioned how one challenge is that in the United States, we have you know this uh, essentially negative, a lot of negative associations with the idea of aging in that we often presume that it's declinist and that we're kind of bathed in that idea from very early on. So we are potentially assuming that for ourselves and for other people. And then, then having these sort of negative expectations might affect how we ourselves experience our health and life as we get older, and then also how we treat other people or what we expect or offer them. So clearly, this has a huge impact on how people experience life as they get older and how we ourselves might experience life as we get older. And so you've been thinking about this now for, for several years. And what do you think are the most promising approaches to counter this? And what would be a sort of better story? about getting older? Well, or is I, that I, or is that the approach we should take is to create a better story about getting older? Yeah, actually, yeah, we we do need a better story and uh, what what I always like to remind people is the better story about aging begins between our ears. Okay, that's where the, mm-hmm. that's where we start. So, you know, I I want to see ageist language and behaviors and prejudice, I'd like to see it all wiped out because I think we'd have a better society if it wasn't so prejudiced against older people. However, in addition to that, I am also aware that the struggle against ageism begins inside of ourselves. And I often recommend to people, and your listeners may or may not want to take me up on this, but I often recommend uh, some time in front of the bathroom mirror um, where you're able to actually really look at your face and you're able to appreciate it and value it as exactly the face you're supposed to have right now and not to compare your face to some earlier version of your face, which no longer exists except in your mind, and, and to find yourself lacking or wanting. So this is often manifest in worries, real worries that people have about wrinkles or creases, uh, you know, saggy skin. Those things are all very real, but they're also painless and they do us no harm. It's the meaning we attach to the wrinkles and the saggy skin that really causes a problem. And there's really the best place to begin in building a society that is less age less ageist is for us to be less ageist mm-hmm. about ourselves. Yeah. Well, I think what you know part of what you're getting at is that many of us, you know, probably most of us have, you know, a preference for ourselves to to uh look more youthful <laughs> and perhaps be or feel more youthful. And so that's in a way a compliment to the uh the ageism is that we often evince a preference either as individuals or as a society for what seems more youthful or what we associate with being younger. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, yeah, I think you're exactly right about that. Um, The real story is, and I agree with you, it's 
the virtues we associate with age. So we we it's not defined by the laws of physics. It's actually defined by our culture. Our culture has taken this youth box and put all kinds of virtues into it and said that those virtues really belong to youth. So when I talk about, for example, um, strength or endurance or uh, persistence or um, cleverness, these are things that in American society are mostly just all in the youth box. You don't you don't think about older people and think, well, you know, they're really strong or, wow, they're really persistent. And yet here's a person in front of you who's 80 years old, who's done so much, who's been so persistent, who's so strong in so many ways, perhaps not including skeletal muscle mass, but has many forms of strength available to them. We look at that person and we don't see the virtues of age because we've locked so many of them actually away in the box of youth. So to come back to around to what you were saying, you were really indicating that we have a preference for youth or that we, uh, you know, youthful appearance is preferred. And, and, and of course that's true. It's completely obvious. And the reason it's true is this cultural, mon- the monopoly our culture has given youth on these really powerful virtues. And the last thing I'll say is just that um, we can live in a society that also assigns really spectacular virtues to age. And we can imagine a society where uh, a man living or a woman living in their early 30s is looking forward to looking a little older because that older appearance is attached to some really powerful virtues that he or she aspires to achieve. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a wonderful vision. Now about getting there. So I remember, mm-hmm. you know, you've been doing your sort of remarkable work for, for such a long time that, you know, that I, in a way I've, I feel like it's constantly evolving. And, and I remember that a few years ago, you were encouraging people to look forward to their own post-adulthood and you were sort of working with a, a story of elderhood and about how it's, you know, instead yes. of something to be feared, avoided, thought of with yeah. dread, that you were encouraging people to, uh, to look forward to it. So tell us a little bit more about that. And I'm kind of curious now that, you know, it's been a few years, have you found that that got traction and that it worked out? Or are you oh, now thinking yeah. that... I, th- I think it has gotten traction. But, I, I, you know, in, in context, for me anyway, in the context of this, I see um, the lifespan that we're most familiar with in three parts, basically, childhood, adulthood, and elderhood. And we, we as a culture pay a, a tremendous amount of attention and actually put a huge amount of resources into helping children exit childhood and enter adulthood. This is a very big deal. And uh, for young people in our society, there's exit ramps and lighting and signs and, you know, people standing by to help you outgrow childhood Mm -hmm. and become an adult. What we don't have, but we need so desperately, 
are some of the same milestones and celebrations and signage and assistance to help us leave adulthood, outgrow adulthood, and enter into elderhood. This often, this transition is not marked by any ceremony or ritual, but the only thing that we have that comes any, any where near it, and I don't think, and not in a good way, but the only thing we have is retirement, which is a pretty flawed concept all right. on its own. So where are, where are the rituals? Where are the ceremonies? Where, where are the educational experiences that prepare you to put your adulthood behind you? And in the absence of that, what happens is older people cling on to, hold on to, grip tightly to adulthood and define themselves by the standards of adulthood and struggle with the fact that they imagine themselves to be older adults, but they're not as fast, they're not as um, uh, – they don't – have as much energy in a day as they did 40 years ago. And so they experience decline based on their assumptions of, of what should be. So I think culturally, one of the really big things we need to do is to help people um, consciously move out of adulthood and enter into elderhood. And I think we're starting to see some progress in that domain. Mm, what kind of progress have you seen? Well, I, I, one of the things I find very encouraging um, is something called uh, croning. Are, are you, mm. Leslie, you know, you know croning? Well, I get to know, tell, do I get to tell you? Um, yes, tell me about croning. I've come across the concept, but, t you know, tell us, tell the audience. Probably well, a few of them I, have heard of it. Yeah. I, I mean, it just amazes me that I have a, a chance to even tell you one new thing because you're such an oh, expert you in have this field. No, no, no. You have the chance to tell me lots of things and also to tell the audience, right? <laughs> okay. So. so let me, for the people listening, let me say about, uh, first off, let's look at the word crone, C-R-O-N-E, crone. And mm -hmm. uh, the original, deep, deep original meaning of the word crone was a woman wise with time. And... Then, um, primarily in medieval uh, Europe, mm, complications ensued. There was actually a political – there actually really were witch hunts. Like they hunted – I'm not saying there were witches, but there was a hunt for witches. Tens of thousands of people were tortured and killed, women. Mm -hmm. um, and the word crone lost it, this ancient meaning of a woman wise with time and got what is it? It's now modern meaning, meaning which is a withered old hag. Mm -hmm. Someone so, who looks kind of witchy. <laughs> yeah. So, so in our culture, to call a woman a, in common talk – to call a woman a crone is to insult that woman, very bad insult. Right. Um, so what's happening, and I'm excited to report, is that all around the country, 
everywhere people listen to your podcast, there are small groups of women who are getting together and bestowing the title of crone upon each other. Mm. It's and taking back the term. Yeah. Right. Yes, uh, which has been done in other, yeah. uh, you know, for other terms that were negative too. People have taken them back yep. and yep. imbued them with a new meaning and new pride. Yeah. Um, and funny about this, it's actually uh, going back to the old meaning. But yes, absolutely. Right. right. Renewed meaning. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, that's great. Now, you know, it's interesting because um, we could also talk about the term elder. Oh, yeah, sure. Because you've probably heard about the Reframing Aging Project yeah. that was funded uh -huh. by grantmakers okay. in aging, the Frameworks Institute, the nonprofit that sort of does these big studies of how people think about certain concepts. And then they propose mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. new frames and stories that mm -hmm. could be used to change the way people think about something. So they were hired to study aging and how Americans think about aging. And my understanding is that, you know, some of their recommendations were that we should stop using terms like elder and senior. And the American Geriatric Society even came out with a commentary this summer saying that they, uh, they no longer wanted those terms used in the, the articles, that we should stick with older adult, which means that now when you, when you talk about a medical term like, you know, an acute care for elders unit in the hospital, you know, a hospital unit specially designed to support older adults and protect them from some of the stresses of hospitalization, I don't know if those are all going to be renamed. So I was wondering for you as somebody who has you know, been championing the term elder and encouraging us to take pride, yeah. uh, what's your take yeah. on, on, um, on that? Uh, I, you know, I think in every struggle, uh, there's all – and I, uh, these are all really smart people you're talking about and I have a lot of respect for them. But in every struggle, every day – we always decide to either fight or run. <laughs> I mean, fight uh -huh. or flight. You know, they taught us that in, in college biology class. But in every struggle, at every moment, you say, is this a battle I want to fight or am I just going to turn? I'm going to avoid that and I'm going to go over here. So I think the frameworks folks in terms of the word elder are saying, ugh, this – Word is ruined. We can't, we're not going to fight over it. Let's just give it up. And that's a legitimate point of view. And um, I think there's some pretty smart people making that argument. I don't share the conclusion, however. Um, I was saying earlier about the life phases childhood, adulthood, elderhood. I think it actually, ironically, plays into the false narrative. That day you turned 18 or 21 or whatever, the day you became an adult, that's it. That's your last life phase. You're an adult all the way through to the mm -hmm. end, whether you live 80 and 90 or 100 years. And that's actually not, not at all aligned with the broad cultural experience of humans around the world and through history. It's also not aligned with the very real measurable changes that come mentally and physically into an elder's life. And it sort of says, uh, it sort of gives up the game a little too easily, I think. So my, my counter uh, to that point of view uh, is the following. One, I agree 100% totally the word elderly is an ageist slur and is 
should not be used in polite company. Um, I totally agree with that. That that word is just solid, a solid compact mass of negative stereotypes and nothing else. The word elder, however, even even if it's somewhat loaded, does have some positive resonance in our culture. Um, does for some people signify something deeper and richer and more evolved than adult, you know, to become an elder of your people. That is sort of a phrase that resonates with respect. So I, I'm in the camp that says I'm willing to fight for the word elder and I'm going to fight against the word elderly because um, that's where I'm choosing to draw the line. Other people, they draw the line in other places and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, that's good for them and right. they're good folks. Yeah, right. Well, I want to move on to giving you a chance to talk about some of your current projects. But before, um, before mm-hmm. I ask you to talk about Independence Rising, which you brought up at the keynote, you just mentioned a little while ago that, that the problem with not having a word for this sort of later stage of life is that in part it's, it sort of denies the fact that there are some changes that people are going to experience mentally and physically. Yeah. And so can you speak to those and how do you articulate those without sort of putting too much of a negative frame on the idea of getting older? That's a great question. And what I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to like uh, push it all the way as far, far as I can. Um, so how can, how is it possible to make a positive narrative around things that everybody just knows are terrible? You know, for example, associated with aging. And I'll do a little thought experiment with you. Um, let's take Alzheimer's type dementia. Mm-hmm. And there, our culture has a story about Alzheimer's. And the story is, this is a horrifying tragedy. And that's the end of the story. I mean, there's no, there's nothing about it. Nothing. Nobody sits around and says, you know, dementia has its good points. You know, <laughs> that conversation does not happen. We know the story and the story is tragedy. Well, let's just for a minute back up and say, what's, what, what's name one feature of, um, Dementia. One feature of dementia would be memory loss. And another way of f- talking about memory loss is forgetting. Mm-hmm. And it turns out people living with dementia, many of them really excel at forgetting. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they, they're good at it. Right. They do it way better than other people. Um, it's a, kind of a superpower of dementia is forgetting. And the funny thing is that if you dig one level deeper, there's a whole body of wisdom in our culture that says the key to forgiving is often forgetting. That is true. That, yes, forgetting is a part of a process we use to heal ourselves from very difficult experiences. And um, I... I, if anybody who's listening has ever been in a long-term committed relationship, you know that if you can't forget, you can't be happy. Because if you always remember all the slights and all the problems, there's no happiness there. So 
ironically, and there are many stories talking about this, there are really incredible stories of families where there was a lot of strife and difficulty, but as an older person was building their forgetting power, they were actually able to move beyond certain things and gain a new level of intimacy that was not available before the forgetting uh, became so pronounced. Well, it's certainly true. Um, many, you know, many families uh, say that that despite the difficulty mm-hmm. of Alzheimer's or another dementia, that it does end up bringing them to spend time together in a way that ends up being mm-hmm. very meaningful, and and that they end up looking back on their experience through it with you know many fond memories and and appreciation for what it brought them. And I would say not everybody feels that way, and that there are also you know a number of challenges that come up. And there's also, you know, the older person who forgets that their child has been coming to visit them every day. And every time the adult child comes, they are sort of shouted at that um, you don't come. So there are some downsides too. I think that's really a a special Mm -hmm. case, but, you know, even, uh, or dementia and Alzheimer's present really particular challenges. Oh, they did. Both to families and and to people, but for, for people who don't even go through that, I mean, they do, unless you're uh, lucky or unlucky enough, depending on how you think of it, to be struck down while you're, you know, essentially feel like you have most of your abilities. So struck down by an accident or sudden illness, you know, most people at some point will experience being uh, less able or unable to mm-hmm. do things yes. that they used to do right. before. Oh, and yes. So how do you help people come to terms well, with that? I want to, I'm going to raise a point that you, Leslie, Yes. You you cannot run the 50-yard dash as fast as you did in high school. That I know. <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> so here you are talking to me like everything's okay, putting on the brave front. But we know the truth. You can't run the 50-yard dash as fast as you used to. And I don't know how you get through your days. I don't know how you sleep, how you cope. But somehow... The fact that you can't run the 50-yard dash as fast as you could in high school turns out not to have – it turns out to have very little to do with the quality of your life right now. So um, when I was in high school, I was a, a weightlifter. And I, I in while I was in high school, I lifted this certain amount of weight that was the highest amount that I ever lifted. And I can't lift it now. But it doesn't matter to me. Because I haven't built my life around how much weight I can lift. And you didn't build your life around how fast you can run the 50-yard dash. So we, you and I, are in decline, obviously, given what we've just said. But that decline actually has very little to do with what we find most interesting and valuable and enriching about our lives. So actually um, – it's that that continues that story and that way of adjusting continues across the whole lifespan and as you know because i know you follow the research um it's you know the 70s are ranked as the happiest decade of human life and a big reason uh is that the people living in their 70s have made a lot of adjustments in their personal expectations that mean they don't they they're they're living a life they want to live and they have the means to live that life that's what matters not how much 
you can lift or how fast you can run or, you know, how many business meetings you can pack into a day. Those things are not as important. Well, I think you're bringing up a very important point, which is that it's true, you know, the the research and also in talking to people sort of consistently show that people do learn to adapt and often become more accepting mm-hmm. of situations as they get older and that generally mm-hmm. people are often happier uh, later in mm-hmm. life than they were earlier. And probably mm-hmm. if more people knew this earlier in their life, they might uh, <laughs> feel less... Yes. You know, uh, yeah. anxiety or dread. Uh, of, about, yes, a fear of aging. Yeah, about mm-hmm. their future because I think often that's not known right. to people who don't right. work with older people. So, very, um, really important point there. Well, I would love for you to talk about your current project, and uh, you talked about independence and how you've decided to shift from the dependence industry. That you did a lot of your work earlier in nursing homes mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and in long-term care, but that those are industries that kind of thrive off people having reached a stage of dependence and that you now want to work on the independence side. And so you now have this project called Minka about houses. So um, Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about why you've become so interested in housing. And I loved one of the things you said during the keynote, which is that houses kill. (laughs) And uh, so how you think about housing and, you know, it's a perennial question that people ask me or bring up, which is um, where should my mother live? As she gets older, should she move mm-hmm. or, you know, she mm-hmm. says she wants to stay in her house, but I'm terribly worried about her. Should she be living there? Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about, about that? You bet. And, I, you know, I, I know that in your practice, you're very well aware of the towering importance of housing to the independence, quality of life and well-being of older people. Housing really matters a lot. Wow. And uh, I, I have found that most, as I got into doing this work, and I'll, I'll describe Minka, but as I got started, I, I started looking at the housing industry in America. And one of the first things you discover is that the size of the average American house has doubled since the end of World War II. And during that same time span, the average size of the household, the number of people living in a household, dropped in half. So houses got twice as big, half as many people living in them, four times as many square feet per person as there were at the end of World War II. So why do I bring that up? And, and the answer is, you know, for all the craze about tiny houses and there's a lot of buzz about that in our society, the fact is – Generally, we have too much house. And when you have too much house, it carries with it uh, a responsibility for maintenance and upkeep. Uh, There's a cost to heat it and cool it. And they're often these larger houses are parts of often parts of developments where if you're not driving, you're socially isolated. Often, not always, these houses are situated in a way where you, you don't really have neighbors in the, in the way that we think of it conventionally. So the house turns out um, that we went crazy building houses that were supposed to be good for raising families. And now we have an aging society and those same houses are terrible, terrible places to grow old in. Mm-hmm. But people are deeply attached to them, often, deeply as you know. Attached. So, yes. I agree. So, here's part, not whole. Here's part of the reason they're deeply attached to their houses. 
in American society, if you are an older person, every morning when you wake up, you have a, you face a choice. Stay living where you are or lose your independence. Mm. We've identified, and you know this because of what happens in the office, you know, with the, the, when the conversation is being had, you know, we identify staying in that house with independence and leaving that house as a failure. Mm. So, mm-hmm. yes, there are people who love their big old rambling Victorian and hooray for them that they made mortgage payments for 30 years and they bought that house. But the fact is the fear of leaving it has a lot to do with the fear of the loss of independence. So what Minka is about is about creating a third option, a compact, modular, compact house, actually built by robots, just I'll talk about that, but that can be assembled in a couple of days and that can be added to an existing single-family property or it can be clustered together to make a little pocket neighborhood of compact houses. And the point is, and the, the design work I've done on this, is all about creating a, a small house that's yours and that supports your independence and decreases the, your cost and enables you um, to live how you want, where you want for longer. So. It's um, sort of imagine a, a fork in the road. Stay in your home, lose independence. We're, Minka is a third. We're building a third road that's sort of between the two. Mm-hmm. And that's the idea. So people often say that the affordability of housing is a major barrier to yeah. um, moving. You know, some people want to, to move, but a lot of, uh, yep. you know, what has been conventionally called senior living. I'm not sure what we're supposed to call yeah. it right now. Living for older adults. <laughs> elder living. <laughs> Um, we'll, we'll figure, uh, we'll be figuring uh, this out uh, over the coming uh, year, but, uh, you know, often, um, uh, <laughs> it's not inexpensive, right? There's a limited amount of subsidized, right. affordable housing that has been right. designed and built to support mm-hmm. the needs of older adults. And, yep. and otherwise it's, you know, even if people are willing to move it, it's the cost can be very limiting. So, yep. um, do you have a sense of how much Minka houses will cost? Sure. So a couple of things. And here I'm talking about a concept which I know you're, you work, use every day at work called the accessory dwelling unit. That's the fancy lingo for the little cottage on a property with a main house that can also be lived right. in. So the accessory dwelling unit for Minka, for us, it's like 400 to 500 square feet, something like that. And if you, it's funny to talk about a house you know, that's 400 to 500 square feet. These minkas are not tiny houses. You know, you don't sleep on top of the bookshelf. You know, I mean, it's, they're, they're regular, visitable, ADA accessible houses, but they're only as big as you need to live the life you want to live. So uh, that house, um, I'm just going to talk about the house because the working on the ground and the the utilities, that's very variable depending on the site and so on. But the house is about Mm $60,000. Okay. And I saw on uh, Changing Aging, 
dot um, org that there were pictures mm -hmm. of the Minka house that you yeah. <laughs> were putting up yes. um, near your own home. Yeah. So I'll be sure to yeah. put a link to that in the show notes. So that Please the, do. I think yeah. people would be interested. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think uh, it's wonderful to see. You also said that the dwellings should be digital natives. So does Minka have digital type features and which ones do you think are most likely to be helpful to people to well, support their independence? Right now, right now, we're partnering with Amazon on this because um, two things. Number one, I think that their voice activated technology, the Alexa, is a solid platform that lets people interact with technology without, you know, downloading apps and, you know, going through all that. So we're partnering with Amazon because they're really strong in logistics, as you know. Mm -hmm. They're really good at moving things from A to B and getting it where it needs to be when it needs to be there. And as you know, as a geriatrician, one of the areas that puts people at risk for losing their independence is when they're not able to manage the IADLs, mm -hmm. you know, the, the the logistics of living. Yeah, the skills you learn in um, as a teenager, managing your transportation, your grocery shopping. Yep. And, uh, yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we think Alexa combined with Amazon's uh, 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 logistical prowess is going to be one of the platforms we're going to build on in this space. Mm -hmm. We're also really interested, we're very interested in um, using technology and design to help encourage, to sort of support uh, behaviors that build strength mm. and help d diminish behaviors that reduce strength. So, so the houses will be designed to help people get the exercise that they need? Yes. Walkability is key. Well, yeah. that's mm -hmm. incredibly uh, important because it's a huge part of um, just maintaining one's ability to participate in life to the fullest extent, which is what you know everybody wants at all stages. Well, Bill, this is this is wonderful. There were more things about the work you're doing that I wanted to ask about, but I'll shelve it for another time and another time. Would hopefully, be another time. We'll and that. and I will link to one of your recent blog posts on changing aging, where you sort of describe some of the other projects that you're interested Great. in. Yeah for 2018 that you're sort of working on an innovation triple alloy combining architecture, technology, and culture. So really looking mm -hmm. forward to seeing what you do over the coming year. For a last question, at the Aging 2.0 keynote, you were asked, how do you want to age? And you answered together, which I thought was a wonderful right. answer and said that aging alone is perilous and difficult. And I was wondering, if, just as a last question, can you tell us a little bit more about how you are planning for your own future getting older beyond continuing the projects that that um, you're doing? Well, I, I could just say I, I'm doing my best to follow a bit of advice. A woman who was living in her 90s uh, offered to me years ago. Um, this is a person I took care of who, uh, although she was living in her 90s, had lots of friends and had a very busy uh, social circle. And I asked her about that. Um, and she she said to me, and, and I'm paraphrasing her exact words, but basically that she had discovered a long time ago that there's a friend and family funnel that surround us, all of us. And that as we go through life, people fall out of the bottom of our funnel. Hmm. You know, they move. 
They go get a different job. They get divorced. They die. I mean, things happen. And she said that early on, she made a commitment to herself that she would keep putting new friends and new relationships in the top of the funnel. Mm. So, as you know, you've had in your office people whose funnels are empty. Yes. I mean, if you if you went back 40 years, they had loads of friends and family all over the place, but they stopped adding new friends and making new relationships. And time just keeps dropping those relationships out of the bottom of the funnel. So for me, I make a very deliberate effort uh, to continue uh, to create new relationships and build new communities of uh, interest of, with people around me because I do know that if I want a, 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 a stimulating and supportive social circle when I'm 90 – I, I need to build the habits. I'm in my 50s now, but I need to build those habits now that will get me there when I'm 92. Right. Yeah. And and since we were just talking about housing and being in your 90s, um, when you're in your 90s, do you think, this is very speculative, but do you think the ideal would be to live in a cluster of minkas all together? Because yes. people often say as they get older, well, first off, you're living in your isolated suburban home and lose the ability to drive or the energy to be out and about harder yeah, harder to maintain those social connections or make um, new ones. But people also who live in uh, sort of congregate living situations say that there's often age discrimination, actually. And that, mm, um, right. and that people oh my don't want to be... Uh, we could do a right, whole other right. podcast yeah. on that. So, so can I tell you... Okay, have you got a minute? Because I'm yeah. going to tell you one last thing. Yeah. Uh, you're right. You're pointing people to some of the new things I'm doing. You just drop the hammer on something really important. And in addition to this Minka house, which I've been talking about, and you can see on myminka.com, in addition to that, I'm also um, doing a project at the University of Southern Indiana. And the name of the project is MAGIC. Mm. And it stands for Multi-Ability, Multi-Generational Inclusive Community. And the idea is that this MAGIC community will be the world's first blended student-slash-elder housing, where people of different ages and abilities live together on campus in small compact houses and create a community for themselves. So, oh, I love it. So just like you said, we need a yeah, we need revolutions in architecture, technology, and culture. That's really important. Uh-huh. Okay. So you're planning to age together, keep the funnel full, and hopefully reside in a magic community where there are people with multi-ability, multi-generational, inclusive, and just lots to, to support one and keep one interested in. Well, that's a wonderful vision. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I know you have well, a busy schedule. Thanks for having and me. And it's just wonderful to hear about these ideas. And I'm just really looking forward to seeing where you take this next and hopefully yeah. hearing I, more about I, it you at know some what? point. For your listeners, yeah, with your listeners, let's let's get together sometime out in 2018 and, and just talk about what's happening. I'd like to do that. Okay? Yes. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. 
To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.